Uh, yesterday, um, I and uh, a few others here at, at Harvest were at a wedding, um, just witnessing the union between Danny Chen and, and Brooke Holiday, now Brooke Chen, and just really a, just a wonderful time of, of worship and, and seeing that. And as, as all weddings as happens at all weddings, before, the night before, there was a rehearsal, and there was a rehearsal dinner, and um, it was at this, this restaurant uh, near Lake Yola. and as we sat down to eat, uh, there was a little card, and it said, you know, Danny and Brooke, and, and all this stuff, and it had the, the menu, and it had a choice, and there were only three things on the menu. It was either chicken, or salmon, or steak, and seeing as how I've been really trying to take care of my health, and you know, being on, on my best behavior in my diet, um, I, I ordered the steak, and it was really good um, for me to eat. It was a small, it was a petite, it was petite, that's what they call this. I knew it was small. But I, I looked at this, and I was like, well, this is pretty simple, salmon, chicken, or, or steak. It's, it's really pretty easy, and the decision was made fairly easily, no stress. And I think for some people there, they were kind of stressed out because they're very indecisive and have a hard time making a decision about that. But for, yeah, for me, it was, it was pretty simple. Three choices. Uh, one of them stands out far and above, so I'll, I'll, choose, I'll choose the beef. You ever been to a restaurant, though, where you're sitting down, you, I don't know, there's a group of people, you're eating with them, and the server comes by, and they're like, do you know what you'd like to order yet? And you're like, no, I don't know. We just, we just sat down. Could you give us a few minutes? And so they say, okay, yeah, we'll come back. They come back like two, three minutes later, and they're like, uh, have you made a decision yet on what you'd like to eat? And you're just like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm still kind of looking through the menu. They're like, okay, I'll give you a few more minutes. They go away, and they come back. They're like, uh, okay, you guys ready yet? And, and you're still looking at the menu. And you're like, ah, oh, you know what? Oh, gosh, this is so difficult. I, I need a little bit more time. And so uh, they go away and they come back. It's like fourth, fifth time they come back. And you're like, oh, I still don't know what I want. Have you ever been in a restaurant like that? There are restaurants like that because the menus are like the size of a phone book. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, it's like at Cheesecake Factory, you like flip. It's like page after page after page after page. And then there's like 50,000 things on each page. And so you're, you're flipping through it, and it's like all of this anxiety and all of this stress because you're trying to make a decision on what you want to eat. See, we live in a culture, we live in a world that values the freedom of choice. Look, you stand at, at 7-Eleven, and you've got like hundreds of drinks that you could choose from. For, on 7-Eleven's cups, they used to say freedom of choice on it, as if this was the greatest value. And it is, in a lot of ways, an amazing value. But the paradox of choice on the flip side is that this freedom of choice in a lot of ways, it robs us of our freedom because we're so stressed out trying to make a decision. Here's the, the, the paradox is that the higher the number of choices, the higher the level of stress. Because you're trying to make the perfect decision, trying to make sure that, that out of all of your choices, this is the absolute best one. And in this culture that values all of these choices, oh my gosh, where am I going to go to college? It's not just five colleges I can go to. It's, it's the whole world. I can have thousands of choices of what college to go to. What am I going to study as a major? Right? Am I even going to go to college? If I get a job, what kind of a job field am I going to go into? If I go into that field, what kind of a, a particular occupation is it going to be? We have all of these choices. And with all of these choices, oftentimes we become overwhelmed with all of the stress and the worry and the anxiety that comes with having to make the perfect choice. Anyone feeling stressed out or anxious this morning? See, it's interesting. Well, why in the world are we talking about this? Because here, here's why we're talking about this in the middle of Lent. Because one of the things that we realize in the midst of Lent is that we are people who are extremely broad, but pretty shallow when it comes to the depth of our person. Right? We're very broad, but we're pretty shallow. 
And what Lent is doing is it's stripping us of some of these things so that we can go deeper in our relationship with God. That's what we're trying to do. It's about the heart, not about the art. That's what, we're, that's what the, the purpose of Lent is, is helping us to go deeper with God. And one of the main things that keep us from going deep with God is stress and worry and anxiety when it's not properly dealt with. We are going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And as we look into this passage, we're going to see that, that Paul was writing to a church, to a group of people in the city in Philippi who were struggling and dealing with some very stressful issues. And it was robbing them of life. It was robbing them of joy. It was making them depressed. And it was causing people around them to get stressed out because these guys were stressed out, because they were anxious, because they were worrying all the time. And so as we read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, I just want to share some thoughts that take us on a journey from where we are of being anxious and worried and stressed to a place of of greater health so that we can go deeper in our relationship with God. Philippians chapter 4, this is 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. So they're in this like period of uh, intense stress. There's like fighting going on. There's persecution. People that are, you know, family members are fighting with each other. And the first thing he says in verse 4 is rejoice in the Lord always. And as they're hearing this, they're like, what are you talking about? How in the world are we supposed to rejoice when all of these stress-inducing, anxiety-producing, worry-inducing things are happening around us? And he says, in case you didn't hear, he says, I will say it again. Rejoice. Right? It's not a typo. You didn't hear it wrong because you know that they're not reading this. Someone is standing up and reading this letter out loud. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Right? You've got this situation, and as they're hearing this, he's making sure that you got it the first time. In case you didn't get it, I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he goes on, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Okay, and then he goes on these, these huge verses about anxiety and prayer in verses 6 and 7. But the first thing that I, I want to point out is anxiety is a sign that we're not letting God be God. This is the first thing that we have to understand, that if any of us are anxious in here, it's okay that you're anxious because I... It's not okay in the sense that it's okay, like you're, you're cool in that place, but it's okay because I understand, because I deal with this and God understands that you are anxious. But anxiety is a sign that we're not letting God be God. Why is it that we want to make this perfect choice about what food to get at this restaurant that we sit down to eat at? Because we want to make sure, we want to make sure that there's a good return on investment. How do you know that you made a good choice? You don't know in the present. You only know in the future. In the future, here's how you know you made a good choice at a restaurant. You feel like the, the, the return on the investment, like I said, is good. The second thing is it's, it makes your mouth feel happy. It tastes good to you. And then third thing is it doesn't jack up your stomach. You don't know those things in the present moment. You only know those things in the future, right? Anxiety is when we worry about the future. We're spending all this time thinking about the future, trying to control something that we cannot control. That's what anxiety is. It's causing us to worry. It's causing us to to brood over and to think about all of these things that are completely out of our control. 
The anxiety is a sign that we're trying to be something that we're not. We're trying to control something that we can't, that we're not letting God be God in our lives. That's what happens when we become anxious and nervous about all kinds of things. And we can be anxious about a lot of things. And so in to that situation, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Let God handle your problems for the day. Let God handle your problems for your life because he's able to handle it. You're not. I was reading this, this journal, and it said that 20%, Journal of Clinical Psych- Psychiatry, says that 20% of adults 18 years and older struggle with severe anxiety. Okay, so that's one in every five who are over 18 here. That's a pretty good, pretty good number of us. But I think the numbers are probably higher than that. And just talking with some people and just listening to my own heart sometimes and I, I think that number might be higher. I was reading in, I forget where I read it. It was either on Fox News or CNN or on, on the Orlando Sentinel. But there's a growing, there's a, there's a rise in what is called baby name regret. You know what that is? Basically what it sounds like. It's like these parents are looking through these books of names. And there's one book that has 225,000 different names that you could name your child. And what in the, 225,000, and they say, well, we... It's that, it's that high because we've taken every possible spelling of a given name, and I'm sure they've included like inanimate objects and all kinds of other nouns and verbs in there also. But 225,000 different kinds of names, all this, and people are flipping through it and trying to find a needle in a haystack, that perfect name. And so what they're doing is they're trying to find out this name, and, and this one lady who wrote this article is saying, I've interviewed all these people, and they're coming to me, and the incidence of baby name regret is higher and higher and higher than ever before. Partly because there's so many more choices and they want to make this perfect choice. And here's what they say. They say, we want to have a name that is both unique, but at the same time, it's meaningful. But sometimes in trying to find a name that's unique and meaningful, they get all, oh, uh why did they pronounce my baby's name wrong? Because ain't nobody had that name. They've never seen a name like that before. What do you expect? And oh, I need to change my name. Change my baby's name. So they change them, or they find out that I named my baby Judas, and oh my gosh, someone told me that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. I don't like that name anymore. Like they find out that the, the name that they've given to their child is the name of some notorious criminal. They're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to call him that anymore. And so people are trying to change their name. Why? Because they, they say, well, because of whatever we name our child, that's going to shape their destiny. We named our kid, our, our boy, a girl's name, and now they're getting picked on. And they've got all kinds of disciplinary issues. Can we change their name? That's what they're saying. Or, or other people are like, okay, this is what uh, this study found out. This article is saying that people with, uh, with African-American names are a whole lot less likely to get called back simply on basis of, of resumes Right, exact same resume, you put an African-American name on one and you put uh, an Anglo name on another. They said the African-American name is, is a whole lot less likely to be called back for a job interview. Like, oh, we've got to change our name now to, to, to Bob or something like that or, or to, to Robert or something that, that people will look at and say, yeah, I want to call back that person based on their name. And they're having all kinds of regret because they realize that the name that they've given could negatively influence the future of their child. And so they're getting all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of stress and all kinds of worry because they're trying to control something that they cannot control and they're trying to be a person that they cannot be. If you've never played golf before, okay, don't let anyone trick you into saying it's a good stress reliever. 
If you play golf, right, it may be a good stress reliever. But if you haven't yet played and you're trying to get into golf, don't let them tell you that because it's not. Right? I, tr- I, I got duped into it. People said, hey, you know, it's good. You need to do something on your day off, spend a few hours out in nature hitting some golf balls that release stress and makes you feel real good. And I, bu- I believed it. I drank the Kool-Aid. I did. And so here we go. We're on the golf course. They tell me this is what you got to do. You got to get this kind of clothing. You got to get this kind of shirt. Get this ball, put it on this tee, and get this club out. No, not that club, that club. No, not that one, this one. I get the right club. Okay, just wind up and hit it. I'm like, cool. Okay, I'm going to do everything that I think they're doing. And people watching me, they're like, no, you're not doing it the way I said it. But I think I'm doing it the way that they told me. So I wind up and I hit it, and the ball doesn't go anywhere. It just like dribbles on the ground. And I'm like, oh, man, that's that's not what I wanted it to do. And they're like, okay, try it again, try it again. We'll let you try it again. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is cool. If life, all of life had do-overs, then it would be completely like stress-relieving. But so I put it on, on the thing, and they're like, do it like this. And so I hit it, and the ball goes up in the air. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. And when it's not going in the direction that I want it to go in, right? Yeah, it's up in the air. That's cool. But that's, I want it to go over here. It's going over there. I do what I saw other people do. I start yelling at the ball. <laughs> I start bending my body. I start get go, go, go this way. And at the end of the day, I'm trying to get the ball to do something that I cannot get it to do. After I've hit it, that's it. But to say go or stop or, or hook or go the other way or, or whatever it is else a ball can do, for me to do that, I'm trying to control something that I can't. And that's where the stress comes out for me. It's not stress relieving. It's anxiety producing in my heart because I'm trying to do something that I cannot do. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough to change the course of the ball in mid-flight. And a lot of times, whether it's a parent with baby name regret, a golfer who who has golf ball regret, or any of us who have some kind of, uh, of worry or anxiety or stress about any given situation, it's usually because we're trying to do something that we're not strong enough, good enough, smart enough to do, and that's to change the future and to predict it and to make it go the way that we want it to go. How many of us are stressed out because we're thinking about what's going to happen next week on that exam? These are stressed out about, oh my gosh, what's my dad going to say because I got this or that or did this or that? We're stressed out about all these things in the future over something that we don't have the power to control at this point in time. See, anxiety is when we try and control everything and make it exactly the way we want it to look in the future, only to realize that we don't have that kind of power, that we don't have that kind of control, that that's not up to us to decide. And that's where anxiety comes when it, we get, come to grips with that realization that I can't change this, that I can't fix this, that I can't decide this, that I can't determine this. And this is where anxiety begins to come in. It's a sign, he says. But not only is it a sign, but there's, it's also the reality is that anxiety is a sin because he says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. It's a command. And when we become anxious, right, we're sinning. And because we sin, there's consequences. We become moody. We become grumpy. And people around us get upset. We get ulcers and we get stomach pains and we can't sleep. How many, how many of us feel like we need to stay up all night in order to take control over a given situation? And because we do, we're stressing out and we're feeling all kinds of anxiety. Yeah, of course, in, in situations, if we have an exam and stuff, we have to study. We need to, you know, we need to do our part. But a lot of times we're trying to do something 
that is not part of our job description. We're trying to do something that only God can do. And as a result, we, we stay up all night. And, and that's why I have to drink energy drinks, because I think it's all up to me. Because I think it's all up to me to try and make this right or to do all these things. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, God is trying to tell us who's in charge and who's not. You read in the creation account, it says the first day, the second day, the third day, and at the end of every day, what does it say? It says there was morning and there was evening. Am I right? There was morning and there was evening the first day, the second day, the third day. Am I right? I'm not right. Because he always says there was evening and there was morning the first day. What is he trying to say? Trying to say your productivity in a given day begins with what you do in the evening. You need to sleep. Even we think if I don't sleep, the work's not going to get done. Genesis is trying to say, even when you're sleeping, in fact, when you're sleeping, you can become more productive. Right? God says in, in, in Psalms, he says, God grants sleep to those whom he loves. To deprive ourselves of sleep is to, do, is to do several things. One, it's to deprive ourselves of a gift of God for those whom he loves. But the second thing, it's taking matters into our own hands to think that I can do something that God can't. It's a lack of trust in a God who doesn't sleep. God's the one who doesn't sleep. He's going to take care of our business even if we were to go to sleep. The world's not going to fall, and our world is not going to fall apart even if we go to bed. He's saying, go get your sleep. It's not all up to you. Get your sleep because you're killing yourself trying to do for yourself what you were never meant to do because you're not good enough, you're not wise enough, you're not strong enough to handle these things, and only God can. That's the first thing that he says. Hopefully that can be a little bit anxiety-relieving for some of us, but let's go on. The second thing that he says here then, second thing that he says, what is the second thing that he says? Let me look at this real quick. The second thing that, that he says is that God is closer and God is bigger than we think. God is closer and God is bigger than we think. Isn't it true that a lot of times, if you're a child of God, isn't it true that the reason we get so anxious is because we think God is far, far, far away? Like if we really believe that God was close, if we really believe that God was here, right, we wouldn't be so anxious. Do you remember ever seeing this cartoon, this comic, where this guy is looking for God and he thinks God is so far away, he's got a telescope. Have you seen this one? He's got a telescope and he's looking and he can't see anything. There's a nope, nope, God's not near. He's nowhere to be found. He must be so far away, I can't see him. And then the last frame in the cartoon has him looking at his telescope, but Jesus is so close that the telescope is pressed up against Jesus' robe. And the reason he can't see anything is because that's how close he is. A lot of times we think God is so far away and that builds up all kinds of anxiety in us. And look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? The Lord is near. One of my uh, favorite preachers, John Ortberg, says this is the central promise throughout all of Scripture is that God is near. In Again, in Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, God walks with them in the cool of the day, letting them know, hey, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. The promise he gives to Abraham when Abraham is 
flipping out. Like, God, what am I going to do? How am I going to, how do I? God's promise is, look, I'm with you. That was a promise that he gave Moses when Moses was like, I can't do this. How am I going to lead the people? God says, I'm with you. That was Joshua. Joshua's like, oh my gosh, Moses is dead. There's a void in the, in the, in the leadership of Israel. Who's going to do it? God says, you do it. He says, you're the man. Take my hand and claim the land. He's like, I can't do it. And he's like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm near. The Lord is near. It's the promise throughout scripture. That's the reason why in the wilderness wanderings, what was it that guided them? It was a pillar of fire by night. And it was a cloud by day, letting them know God's saying, I am with you. I'm with you in the midst of all of your worries, in the midst of all of your anxieties. Understand that the Lord is near in the midst of you having a, 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 a jobless situation, in the midst of you having a child that's sick, in the midst of you having a grade that is just going down and down and down further and further away. He's saying, understand this, that the Lord is near, that God is closer than you think. That's the reason for the tabernacle, this moving portable tent that showed that God is with you. It's the reason for the temple, that God is near. And all of these things to show that God is near. And the name that God gave to his, he said, you, you'll call him Emmanuel, that God is with us. That the Lord God is near. You know that John Foreman song, Your Love is Strong? It says, I look at the meadow, I stare at the flowers. It, it's just this, this beautiful line that says they're dressed better than a bride on her wedding day. So why do I worry? Why do I freak out? God knows what I need. He knows what I need, and he's near. He's closer than we think. And if God is close, then he's also a whole lot bigger than we think. If he's near, he can do so much more. I had a friend in, when I was in the days in high school, Growing up in, in Virginia, his name was Jimmy. Jimmy was, she was like five years older than me. He was, a fr- he was my friend's older brother. And Jimmy was a Taekwondo master. Uh, fifth degree black belt by the time he was like a senior in high school. And he was psycho. He's crazy. Yeah, all Taekwondo masters have to be a little bit crazy up in their head, right? Well, Jinji, you probably know that. But a <laughs> little bit crazy up in their head. They're always like spastic. Right? Never really smooth. The Tai Chi guys are smooth, but the karate, taekwondo guys, oh, there he is, are very herky-jerky, right? And there's a little bit of insanity in them. That's why they can do the things that they do. There has to be like this, this sense of fearlessness in them. And he went to a high school uh, called James Madison High School in, in Vienna. And legend has it that he once beat up 30, 30, 3-0 football players in the locker room at Madison High School. He was a legend. Like, everyone everyone knows about Jimmy Lee. Like, oh, he's that crazy guy. He starts making all of these weird, inaudible noises, and then it's, it's like lights out. Everybody runs away. So Jimmy and then this younger guy, he's three years younger, but they were uh, similar in, in, in grade in college, a guy named Joe. Joe was the younger guy, and Jimmy was the crazy guy. Joe would, would go to the gym, and he would play basketball, and uh, he wasn't very good. He'd just kind of mess around and play his game. But whenever, uh, whenever he would play, just kind of kept to himself. One time he was playing and Jimmy was there. Jimmy was not really a good basketball player. He's really good at fouling people and really good at taekwondo, but not good at basketball. This one time, Joe fouled this guy kind of hard. And so the other guy got really upset. And he started, I don't know exactly what happened. He yelled at him. He pushed him. Or he shoved him or something. And as soon as he did that, Joe had this, like, scared look on him. And then Jimmy came flying through, and he just started doing all this, like, crazy stuff. And, like, three, four, these, this, this guy and his teammates got beat up. They were bloody, broken nose and stuff. And Jim, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but just hear my point. So Jimmy got in big trouble. He got, like, suspended and, and all this stuff. And he came back to school later. 
And after that, Joe lived with a little bit more of, of, of the sense of, yeah, you know what? <laughs> On the basketball court, nobody's going to mess with me. Whenever Jimmy was there, whenever Jimmy was there, no matter what the opponent, no matter how big the opponent was, as long as Jimmy was there, he's like, dude, no problem. There's a problem. Yo, he'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it, right? This is really cool. Wherever, whenever Joe was by himself, now he didn't dare touch anybody else. But when, when Jimmy was near him, when Jimmy was close, he had nothing to worry about. He's like, yo, the Lord is near to you. You get this? Man, you don't need to, we don't need to worry. We don't need to be driven by anxiety. The Lord is near. And if he's close, then he's big and he's able to help you. He's able to do a whole lot more than you could think. One of my favorite passages, 2 Kings chapter 6, where, where uh, the, the Israelites are fighting against the Syrians. They're, they're constantly having these battles back and forth. And Israel is somehow always outsmarting the Syrians. And the Syrian king is like all upset. He's like, why? I devised these great plans. I devised this great uh, battle, battle, battle plans. And, and we always get thwarted. Why? And he thinks there's a spy. He says, one of y'all is a spy going and telling our, our secrets to the Israelites. He's like, who is it? And they're like, no, 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 it's not, it's, not, it's not any of us. See, there's a prophet named Elisha. He hears these things from God. And because he hears these things, that's why we always get beat up. Because they know our strategy, they know our game plan, they can beat us every time. So the king says, okay, then all we need to do is capture this guy. As long as we, we capture their hero, Elisha, then we'll be able to overtake them. And so in the middle of the night, they're camped out at this place called Dothan, the Israelites are, Elijah is. In the middle of the night, the king sends all of these dudes on horses to surround the city. And so here goes Elisha's servant, and he wakes up, and he looks out at the city. He's like, oh, my goodness. This city is completely surrounded by Syrian armies on horses. We are toast. And Elisha the prophet, he prays this amazing prayer. And he says, God, open his eyes so that he might see that the ones who are for us are more than the ones who are against us. And as soon as he prays this prayer, the servant's eyes are opened and he looks up and on the hills, the hills were literally alive and bursting and teeming with chariots of fire all around. The angels of God ready to fight for Elijah and the people of God. Understanding this simple fact that greater is he living in me than any Goliath that I might face. That that, that simple one, two, three, four word promise that the Lord is near. That that is a life-changing thing that, that... pushes out and drives out this any kind of fear and anxiety to understand that, that God is here. He's right here. That's the message of Psalm 23. Even though you walk through what seems like the shadow of death in that valley, God is with you. He's near. Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? If I go on the mountains, you're there. If I go on the far side of the sea, even there, you're, you're with me. The promise of God throughout time and throughout Scripture is that the Lord God is near. 
Whatever it is that causes you anxiety, whatever it is that causes you stress, whatever it is that makes you worry, whatever it is that keeps you sweating at night as you put your head to sleep. Isn't it because we doubt the promise of God that he's near? When our child is sick or when our child is not sleeping, when our parents have lost their job or when finances are are so hard and so tight. Paul is not minimizing any of these circumstances. He's not. He knows these issues. We're not like Christian scientists who don't believe that these things are real. Like we understand that these things are real. They're very real. The reality of sickness has touched many of our lives. We understand that to be true. But he's saying you're not alone in this. That when you worry, when you're anxious about all of these things, it's because you're putting up that telescope and you're not seeing the fact that God is a whole lot closer and a whole lot bigger than you originally thought he was. The last thing that he says, the last thing that he says, anxiety decreases as prayer increases. This is what he says in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is um, like the, the picture here. When he talks about guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the picture that he's giving is of a city, just kind of like Dothan, and a city is, is about to be attacked. Here's how you picture it. This is you. You are a city. And you've got these things and they're about to attack you. Anxiety and discouragement and worry and stress are about to attack you. And you're going to get bombarded by all of these things and it's going to weigh you down. It's going to crush you. It's going to leave you feeling beat up, feeling discouraged, feeling depressed. And he says, there is something that you can do though. Your defenseless city can be held up and can be strengthened as soon as you do this one simple thing. He says, when you pray, the peace of God which passes understanding will rise up and will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That you will become a fortified city and anxiety and all of these things cannot penetrate the walls of your heart. There's a beautiful picture here. You ever been to a, uh, to a concert and there's kind of like a mosh pit area and, and everyone wants to come on, on, onto the stage and and if there were no guards, there was a time where um, the First Academy, First Baptist Church of Orlando, had a Hillsong United concert. A, a bunch of us were there. And because my wife Olivia and because Joyce Kwok are, uh, were part of the faculty at the time, they were given volunteer T-shirts uh, to work at this United concert and, and to do it for free and to get free T-shirts and stuff like that. And of all of the positions, there's so many things that they could have given for them to do. Of all of the positions that they could have had, I'm not sure if Joyce was doing this, were you doing it with, with Olive? Of all the positions that they could give, they gave them the role of being security in front of the mosh pit. So all of these people are trying to get up, rush onto the stage, and you've got Olive and Joyce. Olive is like, why did they put me here? Can't nobody see me up here. I'm telling them to stop. And they're like, where's that noise coming from? They put two of the smallest people to do security. And thankfully, they did a phenomenal job because even though they, they're small, they pack a big punch and they're scary. And so no one went beyond that certain line. But what would happen What would happen in that place if there were no guards there? It would be utter chaos. 
it would be destructive to life and the instruments and the people would be just completely chaos if there were no guards there. And what Paul is saying, that's our hearts when we're dealing with all of this anxiety, but we're not letting God be God by praying over the situations that cause stress and worry and anxiety in our lives. Is that your heart today? It's being attacked by all of these emotional soldiers who are beating up on your heart. And you're like, God, why am I so stressed out? And that's the only thing that we pray. God, where are you? God, what's going on here? Look at what he says, verse, verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition. Sometimes we think, oh, you know what? I don't want to bring that before God. That's too little. I, I love this, this line of thought when people say, that's too small to bring before God. Someone responds by saying, what is not small for God? If cancer is something that God wants to heal, that's not hard for him. If a $50,000 debt is what God wants to wipe out, that's not hard for him. There are reasons, perhaps, there are reasons why God may not answer our prayers in the way that we want them to. He would always answer our prayers if we prayed knowing the very things that he knows, but we don't know what he knows, so we don't pray the way that he does. But the reality is that nothing as small as a paper cut, that's not too small to bring before God, nor is a GPA that needs to be raised, nor is an exam that needs to be taken, nor is a future that needs to be decided, nor is a vacancy that needs to be filled, nor is a home that needs to be rented. None of these things are too small for you to bring before God because none of these things are too small. None of these things are too big for God. He says, but in everything. He doesn't just say, but in your most dire need. This is what some of us read it to be. Do not be anxious about the big things in life, but in those big things, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present those requests to God. He doesn't say that. He says in everything, in your family issues, in your struggle against sin, in your character flaws, in your temptations, in your relationships with people, in those things that you just don't think you can jump over, those hurdles, those personal difficulties. He says in all of these things, present your request to God, but don't just present it. I think this is why sometimes we feel, still feel stressed out as we present these requests because he adds in this little phrase, two words that I think packed with power. He says, with thanksgiving. We may think, well, what do I have to be thankful for in this kind of a situation? I'm trying to pump up a well that is completely devoid of anything to come out of it. But he says, once you get this well started, you're going to realize that there's a whole lot of stuff that's coming out. You have so many reasons to be thankful And as you begin to offer up your thanksgiving to God in the midst of your broken situations, I I can't promise you that God's going to answer those prayers the way that you want all the time, but I will guarantee you, according to the word of God, that a peace of God is going to transcend all understanding. This is, when it says it transcends understanding, he's saying, this is a peace that your mind can never fathom. This is a peace that blows your mind away. This is transcending understanding. Do you have this kind of a peace that blows your mind away in the midst of a 40-hour work week where you've got 80 hours worth of work to do? Do you have this peace that passes understanding? 
in the midst of situations where you look at your to-do list and your other to-do list and your other to-do list and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through all of these things. Do you have this peace that is promised to those who will pray with thanksgiving everything before the Lord? Every week before, you know, as I preach a sermon or as long as in advance as I, as I know I'm going to be preaching something, I really, I really fight to get this message into my heart, to understand it, to really wrestle in my own heart so that I'm feeling the things that I'm, I'm talking about. And it's not just theory, but it's something that I experience, something that I can, and can share with conviction because it's part of, of my life. On Saturday, Saturday morning, I woke up, and I just kind of woke up a little bit of a lot of anxiety, a little bit of a sweat. Because you know when you're on your bed, I say this all the time, but when you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep at night and you can't sleep, these two times are the times when your thoughts are the most unedited, right? The things in your mind, you can't dull them because when you wake up, the first thing that comes to mind is is all of the, the, the pressures of life and all the things that need to get done. That's why Psalm 103, David says, in the morning, I present my request before the Lord and I wait in expectation. But in the morning, that's when we can't, we can't busy ourselves when we're lying on our bed. I have a friend who says, that's why I, for the life of me, I will read and read and read in my bed until I, I cannot think of anything else and fall asleep because I don't want to deal with all of the millions of things that are floating in my head because it will overwhelm me. See, when we lay down to sleep and we cannot sleep, and we wake up in the morning, this is when our thoughts are unedited, they're unadulterated. This is where what's really going on inside begins to rise to the surface. That's why right after you break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend, next morning, first thing that comes to mind, even though you've dulled all that stuff away, first thing that comes to mind is the rawness of your pain because that's what's there. And so in that moment, Saturday morning, I was thinking about and and just thinking about all of the things that I need to do over the next few weeks. And my mind is just racing at this point. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get all of this stuff done, these, these things to deal with, these people to, to talk over their, their, their issues with, and, and this and that and that, and, and think about all of these things. And I began to realize that anxiety is taking over my mind right now. So I said, what is going on here? And I said to myself, yeah, well, anxiety is a sign that I am not letting God be God. And I'm not. And the reality is that God is a whole lot closer and a whole lot bigger than I think in this moment. And so what do I do? Anxiety decreases as prayer increases. So I, just, I began to pray to cast my burdens unto the Lord. And then I remember, yeah, he said, you know what? We're supposed to pray with thanksgiving. And so just praying about all of these situations and praying about all of these um, events and praying about all of these ministry opportunities and all of these things and just giving thanks to God for the people that I'm meeting and for the, for the privilege that I have to walk through life with these folks and to be able to minister the word of God in these different contexts and just thinking and praying prayers of gratitude and realizing that a well that once seemed so dry all of a sudden is overflowing with all of these reasons, 10,000 reasons to give thanks to God just pouring out of my heart. And in that place, I just felt like this guard, this army of soldiers, this garrison of troops just coming around my heart, protecting me from all anxiety. It's beginning to realize that when we take God at his word, there's a power and there's a blessing that guards our hearts and our minds. This is a mind-blowing kind of a peace. 
Here's the thing, guys. When we worry and when we stress, and we let our hearts and minds be filled with anxious thoughts. We're not helping ourselves any. Jesus said, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? In essence, all we're doing is we're punishing ourselves over and over and over and over and over. But Jesus comes and he says, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that anymore. When Jesus, before he was about to leave in John 14, he says, my peace I give you. Peace I leave unto you. It's a peace that the world cannot give. It's a peace that the world cannot know. He says, I leave that peace with you. Instead of us punishing ourselves, Jesus says, my punishment is the only means by which you can have that peace. So why punish yourself twice? There needs be no double payment for all of these things that you carry. Let it go. Turn it over to the one who not only has taken your punishment, but has also taken responsibility over your issues and over your stresses and over your problems and over the challenges that you face. Give him all of these things, turn it over, and in return, you receive, I receive, we receive a peace that passes all kinds of understanding. This is a trade that I gladly make every day of my life. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Let's think about this. What is one thing, two things in your life right now that causes you anxiety? Just kind of stop where we are. You don't need to put your pens away, your bottles away, anything like that. Just stop where you are. What's causing you anxiety? Is it we need to run out of here really quickly so that we can catch our ride? Just stop for a moment, right? What's, what's causing you anxiety? What is it that, that attacks your heart, attacks your soul, that's attacking your mind? That I need to get out of here quickly so that I don't get stuck behind all these people and, and I, so that I can go and talk to that, that person before they leave. What are, what are these anxiety-producing agents in your life? Your week ahead, the conversation you need to have. Let's, let's stop for a moment. Let's just bring that before the Lord. In everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let's present our request to God. Just take a minute or two just in the quiet of our hearts to do that. If you want to pray aloud, you can do that, but... but just in, in, in quiet response, let's do that to the Lord, just turning over all of these things. Receive his peace. Receive his peace, people of God, that's been promised to us. Okay, he's here. He's near. He's closer than you think. He's bigger than you think. He wants to help you. So let's take a, a minute or two right now just to, to pray quietly in our hearts. We turn over these things to the Lord.
Father in heaven, we thank you this morning because you are good and you are faithful. Father, some of us in here have relational issues, relationships that are severed, some of them with our parents, some of them with children, some of them with siblings, some of them with friends. Some of us have financial difficulties, questions of whether we can make ends meet. Some of us have hopes and dreams, things that we're praying for that have yet to be realized. Some of us have pressure at work and just going home from church on Sunday afternoon is such a daunting thing because we know that the next thing after we wake up is we got to go to work, we got to go to school. Yet in all of these things, as we commit them to you, whatever our hardships might be, we thank you that we have the ability to be in relationship with people, the ability to love and to be loved in return, to know and to be known in return. We thank you that we have people who love us and care for us. We have people who have been praying for us and thinking about us. We have the ability and the skill to work and to hold a job and to, to live in a, in, a, in a place where we have that kind of a freedom. We thank you for the encouragement of the saints and we thank you for the songs that we sing. We thank you that we're here and that in our worship of you, we find reason to trust and to believe and to have faith. When faith, faith's fire seems to flicker, we thank you that you are here and that you're good. We pray, Lord, as we continue to give our gifts, our offerings, and our songs to you in response that you'd remind us of more reasons to be thankful. And as we continue in this week, that you would help us to go deeper into you by letting go of anxiety and worry and stress and doubt, being able to trust in you so that you would become greater, that we would become less, and that your name would be exalted in us. We thank you so much. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.